Hey everyone and welcome back to episode number two of the N9G Food Podcast with me, your host, Gareth Houston. I have been dying to say with me, your host, N9G and get that running as my nickname. So if you guys could start calling me N9G, that would be very fucking appreciated because I think it's awesome. But yeah, you guys have to choose that for me. Anyway, listen, it's great to be back. Episode one was a roaring success and I was absolutely fucking delighted with it. So thank you all to anyone who listened. So here today, I have got an absolute belter of an episode for you guys. I mean, a proper belter. I was up until like 3.30 in the morning last weekend researching this episode. I fell down such a massive rabbit hole. All these kind of things. It's going to be unbelievable. I hope you enjoy as much as I did and I cannot wait to show you guys what I've been digging up. Before I get to that though, I do just want to say again, thank you. Okay, thank you to anyone who listened to the episode, who watched the episode, who recommended to someone. I actually passed over 200 listens in episode one over the first weekend, which is fucking insane. Do you imagine the 200 people sat and listened to me talk is unbelievable. It's I'm so flattered and I'm so happy. Okay, 185 of them were my mum, but still, for the other 15 people, thank you very much. Um, and also, I have to say a special thank you in particular to the Flute 360 family. It's a group on Facebook, a support group of flute players who kind of support everyone's art and what we do. And yeah, they've just been superb in supporting me. And I know a few of you will be watching now or listening now, so... Yeah, thank you for the support. It is massively, massively appreciated. Okay, so anyway, let's get down to today's delicious topic. So episode one, I got a lot of feedback from a lot of people, um, but the most common feedback and the most interesting feedback I got from you guys was how much you enjoyed that little bit explaining the price of flutes, how much they cost, how much this bad boy here cost and the reason for it, materials and stuff like that, especially how gold is more expensive and stuff like that. So my initial plan today on this podcast was to talk about the most expensive fruits out there on the market. So I was gonna do some research, find out what the most extreme you can get is and go from there. But that was a thread that I started pulling on a little bit too hard and it unraveled and it unraveled. And now today I'm gonna be taking you on this whole trip through historic instrument making, Um, But trust me, bear with me in this, it's got a great ending. So we're going to start with looking at some of the world's finest instruments and why they cost so fucking much money, I mean so much money. Then we're going to take those ideas and those principles and see if they apply to the flute world and if they don't, what makes the flute world just that little bit different to other instruments. And then finally, I'm going to use all that, you have to bear with me through it, use all that to bring up an incredible story, one that I have been thinking about for years, about a legendary golden flute. That's the only way to say it. It sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings, but it is a legendary golden flute, and it's became almost mythical. And I've been doing so much research on this, so I want to end with that. So listen, um, if it's after midday, go pour yourself a drink, okay? I'll wait here. Go hit pause. Go get yourself a nice double gin and Fanta lemon. Sit down, get comfortable, get ready. We're going to try and get through this as quick as we can, but it is a super interesting topic. So listen, go pour yourself a drink, okay? If it's before 12 o'clock, get yourself a coffee. Get yourself a nice coffee. It's a lovely time of year. Go ahead, I'll wait. Ready? Right, here we go. So, the world's most expensive instruments. That's where we're going to start, okay? So, I've got 
a couple of examples of super expensive instruments and I've came down with three ideas or three factors that I think dictate the price or the three most important factors in dictating the price, okay? So I'm going to give you some extreme ideas of instrumental price and I've taken two examples of other instruments. That's going to be namely the guitar and the violin. The three factors that I'm going to be using to analyze everything is number one, the craftsmanship, the quality of which it's built. Number two is going to be the historical value. Okay, and number three is going to be the material and the cost of the material. All the best instruments will have each three of those factors. However, usually one or two of them will be the most decisive in the pricing. So stick with me here. I promise it's going to be worth it. We're going to start with guitars. So the most expensive guitar ever sold is a Martin D18 electroacoustic guitar. And that's sold for just under 6 million euros. Okay, now the retail price of this model, the uh, D18 E, is somewhere between 3,500 to 4,000 euros. So that puts it in the same price bracket as some of the other high-end guitar manufacturers. I'm going to take one example of a guy called Loudon, who's actually based in Northern Ireland, from Northern Ireland, widely regarded as one of the finest guitar makers in the world. So his guitars are going to be in that kind of price bracket. We're talking four, five thousand, somewhere in and around there, euros. We're talking euros. Um, I, do, I did work out some currency exchanges later, but for now, we'll be talking about euros. For Americans, 5,000, I think, is about $4,500. For British people, after Brexit, it's about three point fifty. Um, yeah, so at this kind of price point, you're going to find guitars of the absolute highest craftsmanship. So number one, craftsmanship at this price range, three to 6,000 euro, we'll say, highest quality, absolute highest quality. You will also find the best materials at that price range. So that's number three in our list. Best materials. So for example, Loudon is making a set of guitars now in one of his signature ranges, which is made from the old wood used to age whiskey, namely um, Blackbush, my favourite whiskey, made by Bushmills up in the north coast of Ireland. Fucking gorgeous whiskey. But anyway, he's making guitars from those wood barrels. So at this end, you're still in the high, high end of uh, guitar making at about 5,000 here for this model. The Black Bush model is about 5,000 euro and it is the finest materials you can get are on the level. So one and three are both covered in that price range. Why then did the world's most expensive guitar sell for 6 million euros? Well, that's number two, historical value. And that's a big thing. It's a running theme of guitars. This guitar in particular was used by Kurt Cobain in the MTV Unplugged series that he did um, not long before he died, if I'm right in saying that. It's a great set. You can watch the set on YouTube, actually. He covers uh, The Man Who Stole the World by David Bowie. Fucking great. Um, so that's why the guitar is so much value. That's why it's sold for six million euros. But generally speaking, the craftsmanship alone will only take them around 6,000 euro max. So one in three, craftsmanship material, 6,000. Number two can make it fly into the millions. That's how much an effect historical value has for guitars. Now we're going to move on. Follow me here. We're going to violins. Sorry, I'm going to take a drink. I was accused in the last podcast of not drinking my beer. For the audio listeners, you can't see my beer. For the video listeners, you can't see it. No continuity errors. I didn't just drink it. I will drink it this time. It's delicious. And I hope the audio listeners get some lovely ASMR. Oh, fuck yeah. Anyway. 
Violins, where were we? That's lovely. Okay, violins. Listen, even if you don't know violins, you're gonna know one make above all. You're gonna know one violin maker, namely Stradivarius. Not the clothes shop that's open in Belfast now. Stradivarius guitars made by a fella called Antonio Stradivari. Now they stand hand, head and shoulders, hands and shoulders, head and shoulders above all other violin makers, and that's just a fact. There's a reason why they're a household name. Now these, these violins were made in sort of the 1600s, early 1700s, that kind of time, but all those instruments are still really highly sought after. So there's about 650 violins made by Stradivarius still existing today. Now the vast majority of them are in private collections with very rich people. They'll probably never see the light of fucking day. It's a big shame. But a few of them are still knocking about and players are playing them. Now, they all have names. That's one of the stranger things about, well, beer's great. They all have names. That's one of the cool things about violins, the Stradivarius. So the most expensive Stradivarius is one called the Messiah. Very cool fucking name. And it's valued at $20 million in euros. I don't know what that is. 25, something like that. Um, but even the lesser Stradivarius, so we have kind of like a golden age of making Stradivarius where even for him, they were fucking good. But outside of that, the lesser Stradivari, we're still talking a million quid to get one. Okay, so they're still high value. Now, let's take a look at our three metrics from earlier. Craftsmanship, perfect. Exemplary, in fact. Violin makers still use the design and model that Stradivarius have thought up. So exemplary craftsmanship. Number two, historical value. These things go up in value by eight to 10% per year. Now, the reason for that, or 8 to 12%, that's how much the value goes up per year. One of the big reasons for that is these instruments will not last forever. They're already a couple of hundred years old. They will eventually lose their voice. The wood will start to wear away. They won't last forever. And when I say not forever, we're estimated in the next hundred years or so, Stradivarius violins will be gone. There'll be no more use. So, yeah. And also, they're, for the historical value, they're passed on through a long line of great violinists. So... For example, a lot of museums will own Stradivarius violins. They will rent them out to one of the top violins at the time. When he or she dies, the next one that comes along, they'll rock up and take the same one. So it'll follow this long lineage of great violin players. Now, number three, material. A lot of them are made of maple wood. Now, the maple wood that Stradivarius used, or Stradivari used, compared to modern high-end maple is still very different. The composition of the wood is very different. And for a long time, and even now still, we don't really know exactly why that is. It's a fascinating subject. Scientists have done a lot of studies into what is it about the wood that is different. One theory was it had just followed a particular ice age and it might have affected how the trees had grown and affected the density of the wood, etc., etc. Now, this wood in particular is what stands the Stradivarius apart in their sound. It's a very rich, dark, resonant sound, but also equally in the higher notes, it's very brilliant and clear. And a lot of violin pairs will also talk about the massive um, flexibility that you'll get in the sound. You can basically, if you think of a, an idea that you want to do musically, the Stradivarius will have the space to do that. Sometimes with lower end instruments, you can try the best you can to express something, but they just don't have the, the flexibility to pull it off. Maybe to play louder, to play quieter, to suddenly change, whatever. Stradivarius can't do that. Now, about this wood, one study recently, and very recently, like last year, 
has started to think that there might have been a secret family recipe with Stradivarius to treat the wood because they found large parts of aluminium inside the wood, which is fascinating. They find aluminium inside there. Now, they're not saying that Stradivarius necessarily put aluminium in it or treated it with aluminium, not at all. But the mixture or the composition, the chemical composition of whatever he was using to treat his violins contained aluminium to some level. Now, we don't know what that recipe is yet. And that's still just a theory, but it's the closest we've got. But we still don't know. We still can't replicate these instruments hundreds of years later. So the combination of our three factors, craftsmanship, historical value, and material, mean that Stradivarius become the world's most expensive instruments. They're going for 20 million euros for that reason. Now, what you've all been waiting for, we're going to get on to flutes. So in the flute world, we're using these three factors or three metrics. There is one that is a little bit more decisive in the pricing of flutes, and that is material. Okay, that is often the key thing in dictating massive price changes in flutes. So I'm going to take some examples. Okay, first of all, if you Google the price of a brand new gold or platinum flute, you will not get the price on flute websites. If you go to the manufacturer website or you go to dealers who sell them in different countries, legal dealers, not in the drug way. Wish there was illegal dealers. My flute was from an illegal dealer, I think. Not really illegal, but very dotty. That's a story for another time. Anyway, if you go check out the dealer's websites and you look up, I don't know, a Hanes 24 car gold flute, you'll not get a price. You have to contact them directly. That's because the price of gold and platinum and precious metals in general fluctuates a lot. So they need to give you an up-to-date price based on what the price of gold is at that point in time. So it's quite hard to get direct prices right now. However, I did find a really good example as of today, so today is the 11th of July, so everything I'm saying is from today. Um, I found a great example. Now, these flutes I'm going to be talking about are made by a manufacturer called Brannan. Brannan Cooper, Brannan Brothers. It's, a, it's an American flute maker. They're based out in Boston. Now, it's important to say that there is no one definitive flute maker that is definitely better than the rest. That just isn't the fact. There is a small pool of elite handmade flute makers and companies that do it but we can't say one is definitely better than the other. If there was one that was better than all the others, we'd all fucking play them. But we don't, for that reason. I play Sankyo, I think Sankyo are fucking cracking. But there's also Hanes, there's Paul, or Powell, if we insist on that. Um, Hanes, Paul, Brannan, Pearl, Yamaha are really getting into the fucking game now. Miyazawa, Miramatsu, there's all kinds. I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two there. Trevor James are making excellent instruments. Um, yeah, but we're going to use Brannan, okay? Now, for me, Brannan is also, it's, it's, they're superb instruments. Frankly, they're superb instruments. A lot of my teachers played on Brannan Coopers and they're fucking stunning instruments. Now, they have a new model out, a reasonably new model called the Brugger model. Now, in that model, I won't go into the details, but essentially it's a really great model of flute. It's got all the bells and whistles and it's quite on the edge of flute, flute making and flute making technology. Now you can get the Brugger model in whatever kind of precious metal you want or whatever material you want, ranging from silver to all the different variants of gold, so 10 carat, 14 carat, 18 carat, to solid 24 carat gold, then on to platinum. We also use platinum quite a lot in flute making. You can also get a mixture, which is quite common with flutes. If you look at my flute, for example, um, sorry audio listeners, you'll just have to use with my descriptions, but the flute body is gold but the keys are silver. Now one of the reasons for that is 
First of all, it costs a lot more to put the keys in gold as well. It'll double the price almost because the material, first of all, you have to buy the gold and second of all, for the keys and more intricate parts, you have to shape it into those spaces. So it takes a lot more work. The most important part of the flute for the sound is the tube. That's a bit that vibrates most. If I had gold keys, it would add more vibration and more sound, but not significantly so, not massively so. It is a difference and it's a difference worth paying for, but the most important part is the tubing. So you'll often get players who mix them up. But I'm going to talk today about the Brandenburger model. First of all, they have one in solid silver, top to bottom silver. Now, if you were to go buy that today, 11th of July, from the Food Centre in New York, superb shop, that would cost you $15,420. In sterling, that's £11,942, and in euros, that's 14001 If you wanted the exact same model, exact same flute, but made of platinum, which is the most expensive precious metal, as of today, it costs $82,405, which is £63,804 and £74,849 in euros. Fuck me. So, yeah, as I said in the last podcast, the main reason why we do change the metals is because the vibration, the speed of vibration. So the density of the metal means when you put air against it, it will vibrate at a different speed. So generally, as we go up the quality of gold to platinum, it vibrates quicker. Now, a really rough guide to this, and please don't take this as gospel. And if you do, I, yeah. Don't take anything I say as gospel. Seriously, I'm wearing a fucking cap inside. But if you're going to take anything, the general rule, silver vibrates slower. It doesn't give as brilliant a sound, but it does make for a lot of flexibility in the sound. As we climb up the percentage of gold and the quality of gold up to platinum, we get increasingly denser and an increasingly faster vibration, meaning an increasingly more brilliant and rich sound. However, potentially one flaw or one complaint that is often made against gold is that it's one sound. It's not flexible. So it's a fucking gorgeous sound, but it's hard to manipulate it and change it when you want to. You kind of just have to stick with it. And they're quite hard work as well, these flutes to get really ring and I've played on a platinum flute before and it takes a lot of work to get a sound out of them um, but when you do oh, there's something special so anyway let's get back to this Brannon so we're talking these are two flutes exact same model price difference is massive but still the highest end of the highest data we're talking about 80 grand for the highest end flute you can get um, in the highest quality material now generally speaking the craftsmanship and material quality is getting better and better and better every year with flute makers. They're doing incredible things. They're all based, a lot of them are based in this small area in Boston. It's insane how they're all there. They're getting fucking amazing at doing this. They're blasting out beautiful instruments year on year and they're just getting better. So most flute players, if you give a flute player an unlimited budget, 95% of us would go to one of those flute makers and say, build me this flute. We get it brand new and we get it to our specifications. That's what we want with an unlimited amount of money. If you get a violin player, unlimited amount of money, they're going to go look for a Stradivarius. We're not. We want a new one. 95% of us. There is one small exception as a flute maker that we will look for outside of that. Okay? And we're starting to get into this good story, so hang in with me here. In my, uh, in my notes here I've got, we're at part four. So we're over the halfway mark here. We're on the fucking way. Number four. So, that little extra, that 5%, that we look for that isn't a modern fruit maker. In episode one, if you haven't listened, you don't need to go listen, okay? You don't listen to episode one to get this. But in episode one, I talked about the French fruit maker, Louis Lot. 
breaks my fucking heart to say it like that. It's Louis Lowe, okay? I'm not saying, but for you lot, for you uneducated people who don't speak French like myself, fuck's sake, I will say Louis Lot. Okay. Um, he was a flute maker in the 1800s. Knocking about Paris, he was making flutes just after Theobald Boehm designed this modern flute system. The one with all the buttons on and the one with all the keys. The flutes, we call them classical flutes. What we know as flutes since the 1800s, that's the Boehm system. So Louis Lowe was, or Louis Lott was making them just after Boehm got them out. And he was firing them out. He was getting so many of these instruments out. His flutes now, they're still about, and they're as close as we're going to get to a Stradivarius in the flute world. Again, craftsmanship, the fucking pinnacle. Gorgeous craftsmanship. A lot of companies have spent a lot of time trying to recreate the exact specifications that Louis Lott used. Even recently, a lot of companies are still doing that. Um, yeah, so we still use, they're still using an example by a lot of companies, and they will... Most companies, in some form or another, will have came from that Louis Lott design. So the craftsmanship is superb. <clears throat> now, the range in price is quite different because if you were to buy one now, there's quite a big price range, and that's because Louis Lott was firing these out. He was getting as many out as he could and making a lot, maybe making too much money doing it. So some of them were just a bit, I wouldn't say shit, that's not fair, but they're not as good as the others, okay? There's some that are just exceptional and some that are not as good. Also, some of them have had a bit of wear and tear over the years. Some of them have been damaged. Some of them haven't been looked after. You know, these things are 150, 200 years old or 150 years old or 100 years old, whatever. So yeah, some of them aren't as good. Now, I went on and looked at the price of some of them to give you an idea of what you pay for a Louis Lott flute today. Again, I'm going to my friends at the Fruit Center in New York because they are... Again, I, I'm not paid to work for them. It sounds like I'm advertising for them. I wish I, if they want to give me money, I will advertise all day long. But I'm not. They're just fucking brilliant. Oh, that's good beer. Um, so I went onto their website. The range of Louis Lodge flute prices I could see is from $12,000 right up to $40,000. Okay? Now, we're still in that same price range. We're still in the price range of high-end flutes today. They're not going way beyond. Okay? They fit into the same price category as contemporary makers today. 40,000 euros or 40,000 dollars will get you a beautiful handmade food from one of the top companies as well. Maybe side change the material. These are all silver because Louis Lott only made foods in silver and wood. But still, you're still paying the same amount of money. So a relatively small amount of money is added for the historical value. Now one thing I have to talk about here quickly because it is such an important thing in listening and choosing our instruments because it's a very subjective matter naturally but one thing we always forget about is this this effect explains it. It's called the halo effect. You might have came across it. It's a psychological bias phenomenon. So essentially, well the definition is it's where your overall perception of something affects how you rate specific elements in it. Okay, so if we use flutes or trying instruments as an example, that's basically, we know it's a famous name, we know it's got a great history, we know blah blah blah, this person's played it and that person's played it, and then we naturally are more biased to enjoy the sound and want to like the sound. It also applies to people, it's kind of thing of like, oh, person, this person is good at thing A, therefore they will also be good at thing B, C and D, and I will trust them to do it, even if B, C and D are unrelated to A. Or if you think someone's a good person, you'll do anything for them. Same as fancying someone. Once you fancy someone, they can't do anything wrong in your eyes. It's the halo effect. That does affect how we look at instruments. Now, I'm not saying the current people who still prefer Louis Lotz 
or delusional or falling for the halo effect, but I'm saying it can be part of it and it can be a good thing. I talked about this in the last podcast, but having an instrument that makes you feel powerful and that you enjoy can have a genuine psychological effect on your playing. So this is not to diminish it, it's just purely to analyze it. So please don't get the fucking hump with me. I'm just telling you as it is. Because I know someone's sitting there and they're going to be, so don't worry about that. Please. Now, as I said, Louis Lott only made flutes in silver and wood. Except for one. There is one exception, and I swear to God, I think about this flute once a week. I thought about this flute once a week for the last, I don't know, eight years since I lived in Paris. Eight years. It's the Louis Lott serial number 1375, and is the only one he made in gold. It was made in solid 18 karat gold from head to fucking toe. And the reason I think about it once a week is because it hasn't been seen in 65 years. So here we go, the 1375. Here's what we know about this food already. So follow me here, because this is where it gets good. As if the podcast hasn't been good already, it's been great. I've enjoyed this very much. Doing this podcast has been a wonderfully therapeutic thing for me. It's a great chance to just talk shite to an empty room, essentially. It's lovely. Anyway, let's get back to it. Um, the flute, 1375, that one. Not to be confused with the 1975, the world's shittest pop band. 1375, much better. Uh, so this flute was made in 1879. And it was a retirement gift for a flute player called Jean Remusat, or Remusat, um, who, French guy, but he was living out in Shanghai, working with the Shanghai Philharmonic Society over there. So, he gets this flute sent over to him in 1869 as a lovely present from Louis Lott, a very special thing. Now he pops his clogs in 1880. He's dead, he's brown bread. And then the flute fucking disappears. It's gone. Nobody knows what happened to it next. There's a long period of time where it's not mentioned, it's not documented. He didn't leave it to anybody as well, it just fucking disappeared. This beautiful, only 18 karat gold flute that Louis Lott ever made, gone. Now we get into something beautifully serendipitous. The flute made its way back to Europe. Now we don't know how, it got back to Europe somehow in a fucking state as well. Okay, it was destroyed, not totally destroyed, but like it wasn't playable. Um, and it ends up with this antique stealer in France, of all places. Now this fella was apparently on the verge of melting this flute down just to get the gold out of it, when who should pop into the shop and find it and discover the flute Jean-Pierre fucking Rampal. Obviously, who wouldn't? Now, quick note for anyone not familiar, Jean-Pierre Rampal, or Jean-Pierre Rampal, um, was a really famous flutist, an incredibly famous flute player. In the last podcast, I had said that James Galway is the best flute player of all time. Jean-Pierre Rampal comes in at a close two. Now, I know that's not factual. I know James Galway is not factually the greatest flute player of all time, but it's a podcast. He is. He just is. And listen, if, any, if you get into an argument with someone and you say, James Galway's the best flute player in the world, and someone says, hey, he's not. You just say, my Uncle Gareth told me. You send him to me, I'll have a fucking word with him. But Rampal comes in in a very, very close second. Incredible flute player, so famous. He died in 2000, so he's still relatively contemporary, okay? Um, he was born in 1922, I wanna say, and yeah, died in 2000. Now his name is not Jean-Pierre fucking Rampal, it's just Rampal, Jean-Pierre Rampal. I added the fucking four for comedic effect. Anyway, so Rampal stumbles across this flute and he snaps it up. He knows what it is. He knows exactly what it is. So actually I read somewhere this, someone can clarify if this would be amazing. I read somewhere you had to pay for the flute with gold. I don't know if that makes any sense. Can't find anything on that. So if you do, let me know about that. But anyway, 
He buys the food, sends it off to his dad, who is a food repair guy, very handily. And his dad gets this food in the plane condition in a couple of days. He's down in Marseille in the south of France. Rompad sends it down. Daddy Rompad gets it fixed quick. Apparently he couldn't sleep. He was just so buzzed to get this fucking thing going. So he's got it. He's got it ready. It's flying out. Rompad takes it and it's a match made in heaven. The world's best flute player at the time with the world's best, most mythical flute. It's gorgeous. It's serendipitous. And Rompad, he takes that for 11 years. He tours with it, he records one of those recordings everywhere of it. Early one pile is always recorded on the Go Louis Lot. It's an insane sound. Now, is it the Louis Lot or is it one pile? It's a beautiful mixture of the two, we don't know, but it's it's gorgeous. There's a version of him playing C. Hanks. Oh, anyway. He plays it for 11 years. In 1958, he pops over to America and does a tour, and the Haynes Flute Company have now made a flute for Rampal, and it's very similar to the Louis Lot. It's based off the design. Rampal loves the new Haynes, and he says, this is my flute now. So he says, Louis Lot's lovely. He does one more recording with it in London, and then he pops it into a bank. And that's it. That's all she wrote. He popped it into a bank in France, and that's it. It hasn't been seen since. Now, I have done genuine fucking digging over the years on this. When I lived in Paris, especially, I got obsessed with this because I knew it was a bank in France, probably Paris. Rampal lived in Paris. Uh, actually, very, um, how do we say that? Romantically or poetically so, on Avenue Mozart. Not far from the Radio France um, radio hall. But anyway, he was knocking about there. So I assumed the flute would have been in a bank in Paris. I did some digging. Now, I have a theory slash source on this someone has told me which bank it is i can't say which bank it is i'm afraid um and also i cannot yeah i cannot tell you anything about the bank actually and i can't tell you who the source is either i'm afraid but it is there it's in the city center now it's in a normal-ish bank like in their security vault and it is in paris and it's been sitting there for 65 years and has never been taken out once to my knowledge Okay, if it's been taken out, someone needs to tell me. So, we're at the end here. Now, this is the bit in the podcast where I was going to have a conclusion for you. And I was going to tie this all together beautifully. And I wanted to give you a happy ending. I wanted to pull it out, and, but no. The flute is still gone. Now, I got obsessed over this. And I asked about it in different flute groups. And I've asked a lot of flute players. And it seems that for some strange reason... We've all just accepted this in the flute world as the only Louis Lot flute, the Excalibur of flutes, the only Louis Lot gold flute is just, it's in a bank, um, that's all she wrote. There's not really a movement to get this thing out, to get it in the museum, to just see it. I want one picture of it, I just want to know it's existing. There isn't really that. Now, I don't know if it's disinterest or if it's people giving up on it, maybe the, the Rampal family who are still owning it. Maybe they've made it very, very clear that it will never come out and it's just, we've given up. Or maybe there's just a bit of awareness lost on it. Maybe none of us are really, yeah, we're not fully aware that this thing is still out there and the genuine, beautiful history behind it. It's so poetic. It's so gorgeous. It's one of my favorite stories of the flute. So if anyone does know anything about this flute, the 1375 solid 18 cargo Louis Lot Rampal flute, please message me. Find me on social media, Gareth Houston. Um, I'm on, yeah, all the places, Facebook, don't like Facebook, but I'm on there. Instagram, I'm on. I'm very active. Uh, I've got a TikTok now. I'm 30 years old and I've got a TikTok, so you can message me on there too. But give me something. If you have any information on this flute, please get it on to me. Um, 
that's it. I would love to see it in a museum, personally. I would love to see it just go to a museum. Or I would love, absolutely adore, one flute player for Emmanuel Bayou to do a concert on it. Or one video, just one video of him playing C. Hanks on it. And then that's it. Put it back in his box for another 65 years. I just want this flute to come out. I want to see it or I want to know of it. Or any, if any of you have seen it or know someone that's seen it since it's been back in the bank, let me know. I need some kind of information on this. So yeah, that's it. I'm going to start rambling. Thank you for joining me in that journey. That was a lot of fun. So guys, I'm going to say goodbye now. I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, thank you for listening. If you've made it this far in the podcast, once again, hugely appreciated. I can't believe that people still want to sit and listen to me. It's fantastic. And it yeah, it is super appreciated. Really, thank you personally for whoever you are. Send me a message if you did. I got a I got a gorgeous message from someone, I won't name them on the podcast, who had actually found the episode before it was even officially released. It was knocking about Spotify and they listened to it already in full. And it made my fucking day because I got a positive review of the podcast when I was so nervous for it launching. The day before, someone had found it organically and loved it. So that was, or loved it, liked it. But in any case, that person knows who they are if they're listening. Thank you very much. And yeah, thank you all for your lovely comments. So when you're listening, go and like it, okay? Or give it a five-star review. If you're on YouTube, stick the thumbs up on it. If you're on Spotify or Apple, uh, give it a five-star review. It just helps with the algorithm and gets the ball rolling a little bit more. Also, can you please subscribe, okay? Subscribe in whatever platform you're using. It helps the algorithm. It helps me get more publicity on this. It will push it further and it motivates me to make more episodes. And it means I can listen to you guys more, take your suggestions on and make the podcast that you guys want to hear. At the minute, I'm still working through my own scripts, but I would love to start making the direction of really giving you guys what you want and what you think the food podcasting world needs that isn't already there. And as a little promise, as a little treat, if I can get over 100 subscribers across the three platforms, I will do a special episode where I'm going to bring on a bottle of gin and a bottle of Fanta, I'm going to drink gin and Fantas, and I'm going to read out my favourite and your favourite flute euphemisms. I mentioned it in the last podcast. I've had so many of them over my life. Any flute player knows if you've ever been a flute player talking to a non-flute player, you've heard all the sexual jokes, you've heard them all made, and have you had a podcast where you've had them all in one place to listen to them in a row, in an Irish accent, with a guy getting progressively more drunk with a little cocktail umbrella in his drink? No, you haven't but you're going to get that. So 100 subscribers, that'll be my special episode, okay? So guys, listen, that's it. Podcast's over. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for watching. Look after yourselves. Stay safe. Big love.